one of the things that we have to do as part of our compliance to all the various regulations that we're a part of is Mm -hmm. we have to qualify our vendors. And so basically the lab is a vendor for the distributor and then directly for the physician user. So absolutely, Mm -hmm. the physician should feel like they have the ability and even perhaps have the desire to qualify us as a vendor. So whether that's sending us, you know, something to fill out that includes copies of our certificates and licensure, whether that includes an, a visit where you come and do an audit, that should be something that the labs themselves are familiar with and more than happy to accommodate. Welcome to the Regenerative Warrior Podcast, Doctor's Edition. One of the fastest growing regenerative medicine and anti-aging podcasts in the world. Each and every Tuesday and Thursday, I talk to the top experts to show doctors how to market, manage, and magnify their practice to help more people and make more money. Each episode is short and to the point without wasting your time with pointless conversation. Learn the skills to be successful without traveling to seminars or paying for expensive consulting fees. Are you ready? Because I am. I'm Dr. Ross Carter, and it's time to start the Regenerative Warrior Podcast now. Two things before we get started. The views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of Dr. Carter or this podcast. One of our podcast partners has just announced special pricing for our listeners. Wharton's Jelly Allograph for $475 per cc. You heard that right, only $475. White papers are available. This is for a limited time, so act now. Why pay double or triple the price from other providers? To learn more or to order, text your name and the word JELLY, J-E-L-L-Y, to 561-962-1231. Write that down. It's 561-962-1231. On with the show. Hi, this is Dr. Ross Carter with the Regenerative Warrior Podcast. Today we have a special guest. If you would introduce yourself, please. Hi, I'm Donald. I am the general and laboratory manager. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So I've been in the medical field for 25 years and specifically in cord blood banking for the last 15 years. I took over as general manager and laboratory manager about six years ago. Started in the laboratory, actually in the manufacturing stages of the cord blood banking and have worked my way up to where I'm at today. I've been on the National Maradona Program's Core Blood Advisory Group for the last five years and uh, been pretty prominent at some of the symposiums and things within the industry to make sure that not only myself, but as our bank as well, stays up to date on all the, the new trends in the industry. Excellent. So has there been a lot of changes in the industry? In core blood banking as a whole, there has not been a whole lot of changes. Uh, A lot of the core blood banks still utilize the historic methodologies as far as using some sort of head of starch separation method. The biggest change around that has been automation. We are one of the few banks that have actually done a reagent change in the separation techniques, and we use a very scientifically derived reagent that allows us to separate the red cells away from the desired white cell and stem cell that are left within the plasma. And it's much more efficient. It's much less shearing on the cells and it's able to be done in at least the same amount and sometimes in some cases less time uh, than the old methodology. And the other changes that have come within the field are around the techniques used to preserve the cells. Again, most core blood banks use a pure DMSO and Gentran mixture, oftentimes a homebrew, as it's called, that's made within the laboratory. 
but in order to be compliant with CGMP regulations, most people are looking to have something that's produced commercially for human use. And so we've moved away from that homebrew type of system about six years ago, and we use a reagent that's not just dependent upon DMSO to protect the cells within the freezing and thawing process. And then outside of just the techniques of processing and banking cord blood, the biggest change is the understanding that the cord blood cells have many, many other things within them other than hematopoietic regenerative cells and looking at the different potentials for those products to be used in other sorts of therapeutics. And that's where the entire regenerative medicine industry is kind of looking at right now is, you know, what can these cells be used outside of the bone marrow regeneration that we've done for the last 25 to 30 years. So right now, most people understand that you use cord blood for bone marrow transplant. Is that what you're doing it for like a person who has a leukemia or a condition like that? Is that correct? Yeah, that's the historic use uh, is to treat leukemias, lymphomas, and anemias, your other types of blood errors, if you will. The FDA has approved cord blood for about 45 of those types of diseases, even though over the last 20 to 25 years, the industry as a whole has used them to treat about 80 plus different diseases, which would expand from what the FDA has approved them for, would expand into fields such as newborn errors of metabolism and things like that. And then there's a lot of clinical trials now looking at using cord blood in the same type of manner, but instead of ablating the patient and destroying their existing immune system and then repopulating the bone marrow with this new immune system from the cord blood graft, looking as the cord blood to home to other parts of the body to treat most notably things like cerebral palsy, brain hypoxia, even looking at trying to make a treatment for autism in this type of setting. And it's still in the early phases of clinical trials, but the data looks very good. And then outside of that kind of same mechanism where they're taking a 25 mil blood product and infusing it just as they would in the transplant setting, a lot of clinical trials and procedures are now looking at using smaller volumes and smaller doses of these products and these cells to go directly to a source that needs repair or needs some sort of anti-inflammatory type of conditioning. And that's where the industry is looking at right now is all the potentials that that might have. Now, cord blood has a ton of different types of things that help the body heal and regenerate. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, there's tons of cells, hematopoietic stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells, other sorts of progenitor cells. We have all kinds of growth factors, interleukins, and I'm sure there's even things that we haven't even looked at looking for yet that are still in there. So there's literally dozens upon, if not hundreds, of various proteins that are in there, both naturally or already extracellular, but then also things that are going to be released by the cells during part of that process once they get into the recipient's body. Wow, that's amazing. So let's start from the beginning. How do you get this cord blood? So um, the first thing that we do is we have the ability for donors to find out about us. I won't say that we approach them, but they can go into certain hospitals where kits are available. The staff is trained on guiding the moms through the process of signing up. They have a very extensive health questionnaire that they have to fill out. It has consent forms that you know, provides them information on what they're signing up for, the consent forms, the family medical history. And with our bank, our first priority is always looking to have transplantable products that can be listed with the National Merit Donor Programs be the match registry. But that requires a very high dose of stem cells. And so not all qualified and otherwise eligible donors, either the collection is not quite adequate enough, or in some cases, just the parent, the mom herself is not able 
to create enough cells in that collection to provide that stem cell count. And so that's where regenerative medicine can take a large portion of these collections and make them usable. Because if you're looking at a one mil sample versus a 25 mil sample, obviously the ability to get enough cells for that one mil sample is going to be greatly increased in some of these moms who just naturally don't have the cellularity that some of the other moms have. And that's due to, to ethnical considerations. And it can also be due to the health and the size of the baby and how far along in their full term they may go. So our first priority is always to look for that transplantable product because those are still very difficult to find because they do require such a high cell count. But if the donor is otherwise eligible in every way, shape, or form, they meet all the criteria as an eligible donor under the FDA, we now have this new outlet where we can take these lower cell counts collections and still make use of them in a positive manner. It's not just going into the trash because it has, you know, 300 million too few cells that are not likely going to be used for transplant. Now we can use them for something positive. So when you're using it for transplants, normally there's a level that it has to be at for it to be usable? Is that what you're saying? Correct, yes. Usually in the transplant setting, the transplant team is looking to have a minimum dose of cells, and typically that's going to be around 2 times 10 to the 7th per kilogram of recipient's weight. So as you can see, the larger the recipient is, the more cells they're going to need. And when you're dealing with cord blood, you kind of do have a finite number of cells that you can use. And so as you get into the larger adolescents and the into the adults, one cord blood sample is not going to be enough to give them that dosage. So that's when you look at multiple cord blood samples in transplant. And that's been very well documented at University of Minnesota, Sloan Kettering in New York. They're both very well-versed in multiple unit transplants and even in Europe as well. But that being said, the recipient, or excuse me, the transplant teams are always looking for the largest cord blood that they can get, even if they have one that can get them 2.2 times 10 to the 7th per kilogram dose, but they have a, something of the similar match or an equal or even certainly a better match, but it's giving them 4 times 10 to the 7th, they're going to go for the 4. So the larger units that are on the registry are always the ones that are taken first. And so mm-hmm. because of the cost of cord blood banking, especially in the donation realm, cord blood banks have set limits as to what they will process. So with our history with the National Maradona Program, we understand that the average cord blood unit that goes out for transplantation through the NMDP, which would be every cord blood unit currently in the United States, and probably about 30% of the cord blood that is used in Europe, 1.6 billion is the total nucleated cell count of that 25 mil cord blood product. 1.6 billion. Billion, yes, with a B. And so that's a lot. Order, that's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption again. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million-dollar business card and dominate your area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and any question to 561 962 one two three one. Write that down. That's five six one nine six two one two three one. Or go to our website at drrosscarter.com to learn more. Don't forget about our current four hundred and seventy-five dollar Warden's Jelly special. On with the show. And obviously, no matter what your processing method is, and we all try to be as efficient as possible, but you're going to lose some cells in processing. So most banks 
you know, obviously that's the average. So there's certainly some sales or excuse me, some products that are going out that are less than 1.6 billion sales. But typically what a core blood bank will do now is they'll set a range, a minimum range that they will process a sample for. So what we have done is we looked at trying to capture 95% of our processing for transplantation to be within two standard deviations of that 1.6 average cell count. So we got criteria of a minimum threshold that we test the cord blood when it comes in and it's qualified as a donor, it's acceptable, all the labeling, all the testing, timelines, packaging, everything is acceptable. The first thing that we do is then take a cell count and determine what's the total cellularity of that product. And if it falls within that range, then we'll process it for transplantation. And then if it doesn't, now we've got this other potential source of use through regenerative medicine. So what we have done, and it's pretty typical across the board, is we've set a 1.5 billion minimum threshold. So that product that comes in from the collection site, when it gets back to our laboratory, we test it. It has to have 1.5 billion cells in order for us to process it for transplantation. And then if not, then we can hopefully use it then for the regenerative medicine side. And if you're going to use it for regenerative medicine, what are the requirements for that? Is there like a certain cell counting or how does that work? Well, the only requirements are going to be the eligibility requirements, and those are the very same for regenerative medicine or for transplantation. So the only change, the only difference between the two types of products as far as the start of processing is going to be the initial cell count. And so Mm -hmm. since we then have the ability to create vials or products with a specific and unified volume as well as a specific and unified cell count, we can kind of determine what's going to happen with that product. So in the transplant setting, whatever your cell count is, your goal is to take and capture every one of those cells that you can and put it into a final product of 25 milliliters. So every donor is going to be different. Every product is going to be different as far as cell count and certainly as far as HLA. In the setting for regenerative medicine, we're trying to provide a unified product so that you as the physician know that when I use this product over and over again, it's going to be as same as possible every time. So we take the cell count that we have from the pre-processing and whatever that may be, and then we do some calculations to determine, okay, if we want a product that has 30 million cells, we can produce this many number of vials. And then that's what we process it to. If we wanted that very same donor and we wanted to produce a product that had 20 million cells per vial, then we would calculate how many vials we could do of that. And so we process it down into a concentrate that reduces all the red cells and most of the plasma. We've got just the buffy coat of all of the nucleated cells remaining. We add back to that the cryoprotectant that's going to protect it during the freezing and thaw process, and we add it so that we have the volume necessary so that we can create the vials that we had calculated from the original cell count. And so what about viability? I understand the cell count, but obviously if they're all dead, that doesn't help anybody. So what is the viability? Is there like a standard where you need to have it at, or how has that worked? There, there's not a regulatory standard. So if your AAB accredited like our lab is, there's not a standard that says it has to meet a certain viability, but there is a standard that says you have to test for viability. So what we have done and what most banks, I believe, have done is they have set their own internal standard. So for mm-hmm. us, we have to have 
when we get done with processing, we do a final cell count, we do a final viability, and that final viability before it's frozen has to be greater than 85%. Before frozen? Before it's frozen, yes. And so then we have a sample that's the very same product, whether we're talking about a transplant product or a regenerative medicine product, that mm -hmm. goes through the controlled rate freezing. So that's the process of going from the liquid room temperature state through uh, into the solid frozen state, but doing it without bursting all the cells. So it's a computerized mechanism that inserts, injects liquid nitrogen at a certain rate to go through that process. And there's a sample vial that goes through that along with those samples that instead of being stored for long-term storage and distribution to a patient, it's immediately taken out, it's thawed, and it's tested. And we look to see that we can recover at least 85% of the original cell count that we had before freezing, as well as at least 85% of the original viability. So that tells us that the cryoprotectant has properly worked as we anticipated it would to protect those cells and keep them viable through the freezing process and the thawing process that we've done. So even if we have a viability pre-freeze of 95% or even higher, if it then goes through the freezing process and that QC vial is thawed and tested and we don't get at least 85%, then that's not going to be released for use. Oh, so the viability should be around in the 80s. Is that correct? Exactly. Absolutely. How do you make sure that everything's consistent? I mean, you know, when somebody is buying a medication, there's like, you know, it's got a formula and you get the same thing every time or it's supposed to. How do you make sure that you're consistent? Everything's consistent because everything is from a person. So the types of cells and everything's going to vary. So how is consistency determined as well as monitored and made sure that it's, you're consistent with your products? For our product, the thing that we're able to keep consistent is mm -hmm. our cell count and our viability. Like I said, we determine before we begin processing that sample what is going to be the targeted cell count for the products coming from this donor. That could be 30 million, 20 million, 10 million, you know, whatever has been established that inventory needs or that a physician has asked for us to manufacture for him or her. So once that's been established, then through calculations of what the initial cell count is, we can determine how many vials we can create and then we actually take a cell count of the concentrate right before we add the cryoprotectant. And that helps us to verify the calculation that we've done initially. We then add the correct amount and mix that, the correct amount of the cryoprotectant, mix that together, and then again verify that cell count so that we now know one milliliter of this product is going to give us the 30 or the 20 million total nucleated cells that we were looking for. So we're gotcha. able to consistently put a TNC, a total nucleated cell count, into each vial and certainly be able to consistently using uh, manual, excuse me, mechanical multi-channel pipettes to consistently fill the same volume. And then we have the minimum requirements of viability. So we know that they're going to have at least an 85, and typically they run about 95% viability. Now, as you mentioned, each donor is going to be slightly different, and they're going to have a different cellular ratio and cellular makeup. So that's where some of the inconsistencies that we really have no control over are going to be seen. So you could have a donor A that might have 8% mesenchymal stem cells. Donor B might have 6%. Donor C might have 11%. So there are going to be some slight variations in some of the smaller cell populations that we're just not able without a very sophisticated machinery to create a pure isolate of one particular cell population, we're just not able to be consistent with. And 
part of the thinking on that, because you know the question begs itself, okay, so why don't you get that machinery and you have that singular population? But one mm-hmm. of the great things with Cordblood is it has so many different things in there. And because we really don't have the science vetted out yet to say specifically that this one cell type or this cell type plus this one protein is the thing that works. And right. until we know exactly what one or two things works, we don't want to take out the thing that works in an effort to get a pure <laughs> population of a cell that doesn't work. So that's kind right. of our thinking right now. And again, as the science vets itself out and proves itself, and, and it could be also dependent upon the therapeutic at hand too. It might be that a mesenchymal stem cell and you know, interleukin-2 is what works best in a knee when you're trying to repair some cartilage damage. But when you're trying to repair... Uh, brain damage that might have happened, you know, perhaps it's the hematopoietic stem cell and some growth factor, who knows. Um, but right. Until we have that sort of individualized medicine that we really have the data to prove this or that, we feel that the overall globalness, if you will, of all the things that are present in the cord blood are very positive for these therapeutics. There's been some controversy with uh, safety, especially with cord blood recently. How do you make sure that all the products are, I guess, contamination-free and it's safe for use? So every product that we process, again, whether it's transplant or whether it's for regenerative medicine, we do culturing. We have a system called the Bacti Alert, and it's a very highly specialized system. It has specific bottles that grow different types of organisms, and we use two of those bottles. One will grow your yeast and your aerobic bacteria. One will grow your anaerobes and your molds. And so between those two bottles, we're able to determine if the collection process, the processing process, or the mother's and cord blood itself was already septic, we're able to detect any organisms, whether they're aerobes, anaerobes, yeasts, or fungus. And if that alarm's positive while it's in the testing process, that entire product will be taken out of potential distribution and it'll be converted to a research stage. Interesting. So that way we won't have the issues of contamination of E. coli or other issues like that, correct? Correct. So we utilize, you know, the first stage of a proper collection is to utilize the validated kits that we have and many banks have so that the cleansing is properly done, the collector is properly trained and knows how to use the kit to minimize that risk of contamination during the collection process. And then, of course, once it gets back to our lab, our staff is properly trained in aseptic techniques. We have an ISO 7 clean room. We use class 2 biological safety cabinets or fume hoods within our setup. So we've taken every precaution to minimize both in the collection process and in the processing method to minimize any risk of contamination. So what we see as positives typically are those patients who themselves were already septic. And so we kind of have an idea that that is a possibility when they come in because of the questionnaires and the documentation that's done during the collection process. So we know if the mom had a high temperature. We know if the baby had a high temperature. We know if the mom had taken any antibiotics and why. So if it was just, you know, for routine precautions for group B strep or something, or whether it was because she had a C-section and it was just standard practice, or whether it's because she did have some other sort of septic event. We know all of that going in, and depending on what some of those answers may be, that itself may be a reason not to actually process it in the first place. But 
if it does go to processing, we do these culture bottles, and that allows us to detect any type of contamination, whether, again, it's true sepsis from the donor or whether it's contamination during collection or even during processing. Excellent. And my understanding is now you're going even beyond that with uh, testing for other contaminations or disease that was not typical before. Like, for example, I understand you're doing Lyme disease testing. Is that correct? That is correct. We have a standard donor panel that the transplant and, and even the blood banking industry uses, and we've been using that for years and years and years. But because our clientele gave us feedback that said that they were interested in having Lyme disease testing performed, so we do Lyme testing, antibody testing on all of our products for regenerative medicine. So that is part of the initial maternal donor IDMs that we do. For a laboratory in general, what credentials or requirements are there to be compliant to have, a, I guess, a compliant lab? I'm not familiar with that process. So Because I've toured many labs, and they vary pretty greatly. So I'm curious how you know if a lab is compliant or has the proper certificate. If you're going to find a lab, how do you determine if it's a good quality lab? I guess that's the question I'm asking. Right. The first thing that I would suggest would be to talk with the quality manager of the lab. And so they should have a separate quality manager whose job is strictly to make sure that they are compliant to all the various regulations. Talk to that person and ask him or her for information. What are your accreditations? What are your licenses? Can you send me a copy of those things? And if they're not willing, you know, that should be a red flag that either says they don't have them or there's something wrong with them. Perhaps they've been revoked or whatever the case may be. Sorry for the interruption again. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allografts, exosomes, supplements, legal health, or how to create a million-dollar business card and dominate your area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and any question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or go to our website at drrosscarter.com to learn more. Don't forget about our current $475 Warden's Jelly Special. On with the show. And you can do some of the research yourself. So if they don't provide that information, you can still do the research yourself. But first and foremost, you want to make sure that they're registered with the FDA. You know, they're creating the lab. If you're using a cell product, they are creating basically a biological drug. And so therefore fall under the laws of the FDA, 21 CFR and others, the CGMP guidances and sterile technique guidances that are out there. So they need to be registered with the FDA. And then based on what their base product line is, whether they're a tissue bank that's now doing some cell-derived or blood-derived or tissue-derived processing products, or whether they're like us, a cord blood bank that started with cord blood, they should have some type of accreditation that they can provide. We use the American Association, or what was formerly called the American Association of Blood Banks, or AABB. That's our accrediting agent. There's also the Foundation for Cell Therapy called FACT. There's the American Association of Tissue Banks. So one of those three agencies, if not multiple, should be accrediting that laboratory. And then they should also have state licensure. If they're dealing with, whether it's through donating or through distribution to certain states, they're required to have licensure in those states. So if your positions are in the state of California or New Jersey or New York, Illinois, Maryland, Delaware, those states require licensure of any cord blood or tissue bank that is either collecting 
or distributing to those locations. So the donor may come from Kansas or Florida or wherever, but if it's going to be distributed to California, then the bank that's processing that sample still has to be licensed in California, even if they're not in California and the donor didn't come from California. And then conversely, if the donor did come from California, but it's going to be sent to New York, well, then not only do they have to have licensure in California to do the collection, they now have to have licensure in New York to do the distribution. So that's a big thing for the physician client to understand where am I located as a physician? And so am I required for my lab to have licensure for me to use them here? And then, okay, so then the next step is, okay, lab, where are you getting your donors? Are you required to have licensure for that? And that will help protect not only the physician as a client user, but then also his or her clients as the recipient to getting safe and quality stem cells that they can trust. You mentioned touring the lab, and that's an yeah. excellent thing. You know, there shouldn't be any reason for a facility to not allow you to come and visit. Now, some of them may want you to sign a non-disclosure or something like that. That's perfectly fine. They probably do have some intellectual property within their facility that they want to protect, and that's certainly fine. But they still should allow you to come and visit and see for yourself what's going on. And again, if they're not able to do that or willing to do that, perhaps would be a red flag for you. That's one big red flag after touring them. They vary so greatly, and it's like some that I felt I would not trust to buy product from because everything seemed not good or not compliant. You know, it's like with anything that you're purchasing, gut feeling goes a long way. So when you're talking to the lab manager, you're talking to the quality manager, and they're not able to give you an answer that you're satisfied with or not willing to provide you basic information like their licenses and accreditations, you know, there's probably, like I said, there's probably a reason why they're not. And it's probably not a good reason. Exactly. And, you know, as a physician, we typically only get a marketing company who's like a distributor and not the lab itself. So we get a marketing company or distributor that is, we don't know anything about the lab. This marketing company saying this is the best thing since sliced bread. And we really have no idea what's going on with the lab. And they tend to be a little hesitant to tell you about who their lab is. I guess because they're afraid of, you know, you doing anything or finding out more information than they want you to know. So that's well, a challenge again, for, for doctors. There's no reason that the distribution company would not want you to know who their lab is. If they're dealing with a high-quality product from a high-quality lab, that just makes their sell, quite honestly, because that's what they're trying to do. That makes their sell easier. So if at the yes. position you have the ability to get that same information, whether you're going through the distributor to get it or whether you're just saying simply, let me know who you're dealing with, I want to contact them directly, then, you know, you should still be able to get that information and that should make their lives easier. As a physician, you know, and we're spending thousands of dollars buying these products and we're putting our patients at risk if we do something incorrect, I would think it would be have to be required to go make sure the lab is a quality lab before you actually start just injecting random products in, in patients. But that's my belief well, anyway. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's From a lab standpoint, you know, one of the things that we have to do as part of our compliance to all the various regulations that we're a part of is mm-hmm. we have to qualify our vendors. And so basically the lab is a vendor for the distributor and then directly for the physician user. So absolutely, mm-hmm. the physician should feel like they have the ability and even perhaps have the desire to qualify us as a vendor. So whether that's sending us, you know, something to fill out that includes copies of our certificates and licensure, whether that includes an, a, a visit where you come and do an audit, 
that should be something that the labs themselves are familiar with and more than happy to accommodate because if they're being compliant to all the things that we mentioned earlier, they're having to do for all their suppliers. So and they should be proud of it. Of BMSO, absolutely, yes. Our supplier of BMSO, we have to vendor qualify them every so often. Our supplier of Preposite, which is our reagent, we have to supply, you know, have to vendor qualify. I mean, down to the you know, needles and syringes, which, you know, there's a couple of million of those used every day around hospitals around the country, but we still have to qualify even someone like Fisher to show that not only can they supply what we need and when we need it, but it's a product that meets our demands has the quality that we require, those sorts of things. Now, with the FDA, they have a 361 ruling, or basically you have to follow that. Does cord blood fit into a 361? It does fit into a 361 because currently it's still considered to be minimally manipulated because basically what we're doing is just removing the red cells and the plasma. We're not doing any gene editing. We're not changing the functionality of the cells in any way, shape, or form. So it does qualify as a 361 product at this time. Excellent. Okay, so is there any other information that I missed or that we should cover? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but, you know, as I said, as a physician who is looking to use these types of products for their clientele, just do your due diligence, do your homework, be more than ready and willing to do your vendor qualification and make sure that the lab that you're talking to is willing to provide you that information. And don't just settle for, oh, yes, you know, a verbal, yes, we're good. Do your due diligence. Require that they have copies of all of their accreditations and licenses provided back to you. Ask for a a site visit and an audit, and they should be more than willing to have you come in and do that. Again, they may require a nondisclosure because there's going to be things that are proprietary that you may see, but that, again, should not be something that prevents them from allowing you in their doors to see what's going on. Beautiful. I did have one other question I remember. It was the comparison of cord blood compared to bone marrow aspirate. I remember reading that on your site. Can you comment about the difference or the comparison that was there? Sure. There's a couple of different points of comparison. One, typically with a bone marrow harvest, especially if you're doing an actual iliac bone marrow harvest versus a peripheral bone marrow harvest, you're talking about a donor who's much older than a newborn. So you do have some increased maturity of the cells, and that can be good and bad. The biggest positive for a bone marrow collection, again, whether it's going to be a bone marrow aspirate or if it's going to be a peripheral blood mobilization, is the number of cells in general, but more specifically the number of stem cells that are going to be available in that collection. And that's really the biggest drawback between cord blood and bone marrow is the cord blood has a very set and finite amount of blood that can be collected and therefore cells that are going to be within that blood collection. So that's part of our procedure in collection as we stress, stress, stress over and over again to get as much of that volume that you can because there's only so much of it. So if you're leaving 20% of it behind, that greatly affects usability. So we want to try to get all of that blood that's possibly there after the delivery of the baby. So Mm -hmm. you've got a cell count number issue. But again, because the bone marrow collections are collecting from a more mature donor with more mature cells, you've got an increased antigenicity of the HLA antigens that are on those cells, and you've got an increased immunologic ability of those cells. So kind of the scenario or the analogy that I like to use is the immune cells in cord blood are like a warrior, but they're a baby. So they have the shield, they have the helmet, they have the sword, but they can't pick up the sword yet to fight well. They don't know how to maneuver the shield to defend themselves, whereas the older cells from the bone marrow, 
You know, they're your great 300, your great warriors. And so that allows cord blood to be less likely to provide graft-versus-host disease. And it allows for cord blood to be more mismatched or less matched, whichever way you want to look at it, when they're doing a transplant. So oftentimes when you hear someone in need of a bone marrow transplant, which is really a stem cell transplant, they have to have a perfect match. And that's when they're looking for a bone marrow donor. So they test their sister and their brother and their parents and everything, trying to find that perfect match. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. The reason is because those adult donor cells have full capacity to be the warrior that they're supposed to be. And so you put those into an ablated patient, and now they're going to start attacking what they see as foreign. So they want to have that best match possible so that attack probability is lower. But in the core blood setting, these same cells, they can't fight nearly as well, so they don't have to be a perfect match. So they don't recognize themselves as being foreign from the recipient, and they don't cause that graft-versus-host disease as much. So that's really the main difference between the two is the volume of cells you can get in bone marrow versus the immunogenicity and immunologic ability of the cells in cord blood. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to be notified of all new episodes and also like and share this to help us grow. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, to have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million-dollar business card to dominate your local area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and your question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or you can go to our website at drrosscarter.com. That's D-R-R-O-S-S-C-A-R-T-E-R.com to learn more. Until next time, this is Dr. Ross Carter signing off. Signing off.